If you have a Bible, turn your Bible, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In the Church Bible, that's page 1162. I'm going to look at the first 15 verses of chapter 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your earlier eagerness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is God's word. In order to understand this passage, we have to take a moment to set the scene for ourselves. Jesus lived and died in Israel. His first followers were Israelites. And the church began in Jerusalem. Then from Jerusalem, the church spread across the world. The Apostle Paul in his ministry traveled far and wide, planting new churches all over the place. But he never lost his concern for the church back in Jerusalem. And Paul wants the fellowships in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and everywhere else to understand their unity with the church in Jerusalem. Most believers in Jerusalem had a Jewish background. Most of Paul's converts were Gentiles. But Paul wants all of them to see that they're united by their faith in Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is one church. 
no matter what different backgrounds its members might have. And as well as wanting believers to learn about their unity, he wants them to understand their interdependence. Each local church is not a little island by itself. It has a responsibility to be concerned for fellow believers in other places. Now, as it happens, the church in Jerusalem was poor. It had significant financial needs. There were various reasons for that, but the bottom line is that the need was great. And Paul is determined to help them. So he has decided to organize a collection for them among the Gentile churches. That's the background to what he says in our passage. Apparently, the church in Corinth had committed themselves to making a contribution. But for whatever reason, up to this point, no contribution has been forthcoming. So in chapters 8 and 9 of this letter, Paul is writing to encourage the Corinthians to follow through on their commitment. But his approach here is not to give them an ear bashing. Instead, Paul talks to them about God's grace. And he talks to them about the graces that are produced in us by God's grace. His point here is that when we receive God's grace, we become gracious people. And specifically here, Paul is going to deal with the grace of joyful generosity. Our joyful generosity flows out of God's generosity to us. In verses 1 to 8, Paul shows us that God's grace produces the grace of joyful generosity. And as Paul makes this point, he's talking about the example of the Macedonian churches. Just to give you your bearings, Corinth is in a region called Achaia. And the region of Macedonia then is north of Achaia. So they're neighboring regions that Paul is talking about. In verse 1, Paul says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What does Paul have in mind? How did God's grace show itself in the Macedonian churches? What did God's grace produce? It produced joyful generosity. Not only that, this was joyful generosity in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty. Look what he says in verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The trial that Paul has in mind might be poverty itself, or it might be persecution in addition to their poverty. In either case, their circumstances are not well suited to being generous to others. The Macedonians had plenty of personal struggles to occupy themselves. And yet Paul says generosity welled up in them. They didn't need to be coaxed into giving. They couldn't help giving. And notice how Paul heightens the contrast. It wasn't just generosity in the midst of poverty. No, he says their poverty was extreme and their generosity was rich. That means their giving caused them some serious hardship. 
What they did must have involved major sacrifice on their part. But apparently, they made that sacrifice with overflowing joy. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It seems that Paul hadn't even expected these believers to give. He knew their circumstances. But they pleaded for the privilege of giving. And they gave more than they could even afford to give, beyond their ability. What we have here is something only God's grace can produce. Without God's grace, people in this kind of situation do not give to this degree. And they certainly don't do it with overflowing joy. Paul is telling us this kind of generosity is the kind that only comes with genuine Christian faith. That's the point of verse 5. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, in keeping with God's will. Paul might be surprised with the richness of the Macedonians' generosity, but he says there's no doubt about where their generosity comes from. It comes from the fact that they first gave themselves to God. They are generous because they belong to God. This is important because it shows the Macedonians were not trying to earn their way with God. They weren't trying to pay their way into God's good books. Maybe you look at your giving or your charity to the church as a way of pleasing God. Some people even think of it as a way to pay for their guilt. Before we moved to Pelsall, I filled in for a few months at a church which didn't have a pastor. And there was one man in that church who I noticed in particular. I didn't notice him because he came every week. I didn't notice him because he had some prominent position in the church. Or even because he was enthusiastic during the services. He wasn't. I noticed him because every time he did come, he gave me $20 on the way out. After a few weeks of that, I mentioned it to one of the deacons who knew this man. And I found out that this man's life was in a mess, mostly due to his own decisions. And he certainly didn't have a surplus of cash to be handing out. But he felt guilty about the way he was living. And he thought that maybe donations to the preacher might somehow put things right with God. That man had no interest in giving himself to the Lord. He had no notion of repenting of his sin and beginning a new life in Christ. But he thought maybe he could pay God off. Even as he continued to live in rebellion against God. If you're taking a similar view to that man, or if you're putting your hopes in some other gift that you're giving to God, maybe some act of service, or maybe even just a good life. Please understand, no amount of financial donations or any other kind of donation can impress God. God is pleased with us when we come to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Accept Jesus' death in the place of the death I deserve. 
I take him as my Savior and the Lord of my life. That's what pleases God. Accepting the Savior he has promised and taking him as Lord of your life, captain of your soul. So if you have not given your life to God, don't think that sacrificing your money or your good deeds are going to sweeten God's attitude to you. Paul says in verse 5, it is in keeping with God's will that we first of all give ourselves to him. And then when God comes in and begins his gracious new creating work in us, then this kind of joyful generosity is produced. Paul goes on. Joyful generosity is part of a life of balanced graces. Paul has mentioned the example of the Macedonians, but he's writing to the Corinthians. And now he says that when this letter is finished and when he seals it up, he's going to send Titus back to Corinth to deliver the letter. He's doing it so the Corinthians can be encouraged to follow the Macedonians' example. Look at verse 6. So he urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Titus has been well received in Corinth before. We saw that last week. And Paul is confident Titus will be well received again. Clearly, the Corinthian church is well endowed with gifts and abilities. There are plenty of graces evident in that fellowship. Paul says you excel in everything. And yet, not quite everything. It remains to be seen whether they excel in the grace of joyful generosity. Don Carson says that Paul is calling these Christians to pursue balanced graces. Yes, they know a lot. They excel in knowledge. They're big on preaching. They excel in speech. But they're to seek to display God's grace in all areas they must also aim to be people of joyful generosity. It's very easy for a church to pick one or two graces and say, that's what we major on. So a church might say, we are all about teaching. We're determined to be a church that excels in our teaching ministry. Another church might say, we're all about loving one another. Our focus is on being a warm, inviting place a place where people feel comfortable and welcome. But we can't pick and choose. Where God's grace is present, it will produce the full variety of gracious fruit. There will be an emphasis on teaching God's word and a love for hearing God's word and a love for doing it. There will also be a love for caring for one another and for honoring God's name. And among those graces and many other graces, there will be joyful generosity. And Paul says we're to seek to excel in all the graces. 
Balanced graces are a sign that God is at work in a fellowship. That fellowship is reflecting more and more of the richness of God's grace. And it's exactly the same in the life of each individual believer. So, for example, if you love listening to sermons, but you begrudge giving time and energy and resources to the fellowship, then there's a serious imbalance in the graces in your life. I'm sure many of us feel we need to work at excelling in this grace of joyful generosity. So how do we do that? Well, me commanding you to excel in it isn't going to work. Up to a point, we can be pressurized into being generous. But pressure will never produce a joyful generosity. And that's what Paul wants. Because as we'll see next week, that's the kind of generosity God loves. So Paul refuses himself to command the believers on this. He says in verse 8, I am not commanding you. Paul takes a different approach. He points them to the cross. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul knows that joyful generosity is produced as we grasp God's grace to us in Christ. One moment of insight into the cross does more to produce joyful generosity in us than a hundred commands coming out of the pulpit. As we grasp the reality of God's generosity, it cannot help but produce generosity in us. Behind what Paul says here, there's the grace of God the Father in sending his Son. But Paul focuses in on the Son himself. This is the second time in this letter we've come to a verse that takes us right into the heart of the good news about Jesus. We call it the Gospel. The other verse was in chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here we have an equally weighty statement of the gospel message. Paul says Jesus was rich. He's talking about the glory of heaven. God the Son had all the trappings of divine majesty. They belonged to him. Those riches are beyond what you or I could imagine. If we try to compare what the Son had with some situation on earth, it doesn't even come close. Earthly royalty at its peak doesn't begin to compare with what the Son had. That's the starting point for the story of the cross. The story of the cross didn't begin with Jesus' birth. It began with God the Son on his throne. And it was from that starting point of unimaginable riches that Jesus chose to become poor. And that process of becoming poor began with his birth as a human baby. With all the weakness that goes along with being human. But Jesus chose to be poorer still. 
He was born not in a palace, but among farm animals. He was brought up in a carpenter's home. That wasn't a lucrative profession at that time. But Jesus chose to be poorer still. As an adult, he had no home of his own. And his life ended when he was crucified naked on a cross. He was condemned as a blasphemer. He was mocked as a loser. He was forsaken by his father. And finally, he was laid, not in his own tomb, but in a tomb he borrowed from someone else. The contrast could not be greater between the riches Jesus had and the poverty that he entered into. And Paul says, he did that for you and me. It was for our sake. How exactly was it for our sake? Paul says it was so so that through his poverty we might become rich. Somehow that descent into the depths of poverty, that descent that ended with the cross and the tomb, somehow that enables you and me to become rich. Now clearly Paul is not talking about financial riches. We've seen that the Macedonian Christians lived in extreme poverty. They had received the riches from Jesus that Paul is talking about. But they were still living in extreme financial need. In fact, in other parts of this letter, Paul has shown us what he means by riches here in verse 9. He means forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and an eternal future with God. Without Jesus, we have none of those things. Without him, we are people in desperate need. We live in hopeless spiritual poverty. But Jesus' sacrifice enables us to receive all of God's riches. His poverty has provided our wealth. His death in our place has provided us with life in all its fullness. As you and I grasp the truth of this, as it works its way deep into our hearts and our minds, we will feel less and less need to hold on to material wealth. We'll feel more and more willing to be generous with our time and energy. After all, we're rich beyond measure. Our Father owns the universe. We have a Savior who gave and gave and gave. And as a result of that, we have received and received, and we're still receiving. For all eternity, we'll be receiving the benefits that come to us because Jesus became poor for us. The more time you and I spend thinking about the cross, the less we'll need commands or challenges about being generous. The grace that we have received gives birth to grace in us. Joyful generosity is produced as we grasp God's grace to us in Christ. Having pointed the Corinthians to the grace that will produce their graces, graces, Paul moves on to three marks of joyful generosity. 
In verses 10 and 11, he says, it follows through. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. In verse 10, we would expect Paul to reverse the order. We would expect him to say, you were the first not only to desire to give, but also to give. But that's not what Paul says. In this passage, his concern is with motivation. He's particularly delighted that they wanted to give. He's delighted that it wasn't a grudging thing on their part. It seems the reference to them giving already is about beginning to collect money among themselves to give to Jerusalem because we know the money hasn't yet been sent from Corinth. So Paul is happy that it was desire that led them to give rather than some command. But now he reminds them that genuine desire actually follows through. It delivers the goods. That's the sign that it's genuine. When my dad was still working with Slavic Gospel Association, he was contacted by a very wealthy businessman. That man approached my dad entirely on his own bat. My dad didn't know him. And he made big promises about the SGA projects he was going to fund and how much he was going to pump into the mission. That was over 10 years ago. And to my knowledge, that brother has never delivered a penny of what he promised. Or in his case, a dime of what he promised. Just in case you thought he might have been English. We prove that our desire to give is genuine when we actually give. Another mark of joyful generosity is that it gives in proportion to what we have. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. When Paul talks about the gift being acceptable, he means acceptable to God. And you'll notice that Paul does not mention a percentage here. He does not call here for tithing. That's the practice of giving a tenth of your income. What Paul does say is, according to your means, verse 11. According to what one has, verse 12. So we might ask, is tithing a good thing or not? And the answer is, it depends. If you currently give less than a tenth, then tithing is a good way to gently stretch yourself to increase your giving. But if you already give a tenth, then the danger is that the percentage becomes a limiting thing for you. Paul says our giving is to be proportional according to what one has. We might be in a position to give more than a tenth. In that case, tithing is just going to hold us back. Planning is important in our giving. And that includes planning to increase our giving. Tithing is a good target But it's a shame if we think we've arrived when we get to a tenth. Joyful generosity will not be bound by percentages. And at the same time, if we go through a period of hardship, then God doesn't expect us to give what we don't have. 
Paul says in verse 12, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. However, the Macedonians in their extreme poverty are proof that no one is too poor to give. We find more proof of that in the widow in the temple with her two very small copper coins. We would probably have said she had nothing to give. But she did give. In fact, she gave all she had to live on. Genuine desire to give will find a way to give. Even when there is completely reasonable excuse not to give. And then finally in our passage, the kind of giving Paul is talking about aims for equality. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. So this is not about one part of Christ's church being bled dry so that another part can have plenty. There's to be interdependence and sharing. When blessing comes to one part of the church, joyful generosity will want to pass the blessing on. For many years, the churches in Eastern Europe were receiving churches in terms of resources. They were in desperate need. But now those churches are seeing their own responsibility to begin to be giving churches. I don't mean putting money in their own offering plate. I mean giving some of what they have to other churches. Now, they might not still be able to give much. But in some cases, they might now have more than some of the churches who've been supporting them all these years. And this is why it's important for us as a church to give to other churches and ministries, not just to spend all our resources on our own work here. At least some of our plenty can help to supply the needs of others. And thankfully, some churches in America are asking how their plenty can supply needs here in the UK. The team that's coming to us in the summer is being funded by their denomination in America. We're not paying for it. They're paying to come and help us. Paul closes our passage with a quotation from the Old Testament in verse 15. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is from the book of Exodus. You remember when God's people were in the desert, God provided them with manna to eat. And due to differences in their age and their energy, some people gathered a lot of manna and some gathered only a little. But God saw to it that each person had what they needed. And Paul's point is, if that's the way God works, then that's to be our principle too, equality. Not the accumulation of some at the expense of others. Now that we've looked together at this passage, it's worth asking at this point, since this is a baptism service, is there any connection between baptism and our passage? I think there is. 
Betty has asked to be baptized this morning because she's come to understand what Jesus has done for her. He died in her place. And Betty wants to testify publicly that her life belongs to him. He's both her Savior and her Lord. What our passage this morning has shown us is that realizing what Jesus has done for us doesn't just lead us to salvation and then to baptism. Realizing what Jesus has done for us impacts every part of our lives, every day. And we've looked at just one specific example of how that works. We've seen that focusing on the cross, which is at the center of our passage, focusing on the cross is the only way we'll have the right attitude to our money and possessions. Focusing on the cross teaches us how rich we are in Christ. Focusing on the cross shows us what generosity looks like. And it frees us to be generous people ourselves. So we need the cross every day. Not just on our baptism day. Not just on the day we trust in Christ for our salvation. To try to help us respond to God's word, we're going to sing two songs now. And they're songs that help us connect God's grace to us and our grace to others. So we're going to sing 1 